how do you end every fight or disagreement before we even knew what they were? And what we decided was the person that felt the strongest won, period. Which has kind of been a weird way to operate, but it's worked for a decade and we've had many disagreements. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Fazell from Dallas, Texas, and you're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today's episode explores growing a successful partnership and firm with Nina O'Neill from Archer Investment Management. She joins Hannah to look into her career and partnership at Archer, as well as what it's like in the profession for women and the unique struggles they face. Straight ahead, Hannah and Nina discuss the reality of work-life balance, the Female Advisor Network, and more. Aging and longevity have changed financial planning, and creating an intentional plan for long-term care is more than a sale. It's a discussion about health, lifestyle, family, and how your clients want to spend their final years. With Ash Brokerage as your partner, you don't need to navigate it alone. From starting the conversation to identifying clients and determining the source of funding, they make it easy. When it comes to long-term care, just ask. Give them a call at 1-800-589-3000 and ask for the long-term care team. Or visit them at ashbrokerage.com. Well, thanks for joining us today, Nina. Absolutely. Thank you. So I am so excited to have you on this episode. You have such a great story and and all the different things that you've built um, throughout the years from your practice to what you're doing for women and, and families, really kind of redefining what it looks like to have a family in the workforce today. Let's dive in first to, can you tell us about how you got started into financial planning? Yes, I am an accidental advisor. <laughs> I was an English major and creative writing minor and thought I would have a great career in publishing. But um, I moved to New York City and through some friends that worked in finance, found it fascinating. And, and with some of their encouragement, got a, spoke with a recruiter and got a job in institutional finance um, as really a client relations liaison between uh, the investment management firm that I worked for and the clients that they served. And so... That was a really great experience learning corporate finance. Well, I guess it really a disciplined approach to investing, but also the relationship side. And so I really wanted to move back to North Carolina, where I'm from, and had an opportunity with Merrill Lynch and just really fell in love with personal finance and taking my institutional approach and working with kind of the everyday person and helping them to make good financial decisions and financial planning. So it was totally by accident, unexpectedly, and I've found a, a real calling and career that I've I've loved. So you're at Merrill Lynch working for this. Were you able to really serve those clients that you really wanted to work with at that point? Not in the way that I do now. And it's just basically the, the companies are just structured so differently. Um, they did have financial planning tools and, and a Monte Carlo simulation that we could use. I used mostly third-party money managers or some of their uh, investment platforms for managing money, but I, I was more limited than I am now in some of the products and services that we currently deliver. And then also with any program in financial services at that level, you're going to, because I was in their training program, you have sales requirements, you have account opening, you know, production. So it's a very high stress environment to meet your, at the time they called them hurdles and, and I, and I was, it's just um, a different approach to building your book of business. It, I really felt like I had to take anybody that was willing to work with me. So you left Maryland and then you ended up uh, partnering up with somebody. Is that right? I did. Yes. 
my training program was terminated when Bank of America purchased Merrill at the very end of 2008. So that got terminated. And so, I mean, that was basically your your job. Everything was just gone, right? Yeah. And I mean, I built a client base from scratch. They had training and and they had um, some resources. But like with most people, it's kind of here's a computer, there's a phone, go build your book. And so I had to really figure out how to do that and think about how to work smarter and not harder because I had really high requirements of me, but we we were also kind of, in my opinion, in a flooded market. There are a lot of advisors in the area where I am. And so a lot of competition with established people. So I had to figure out how to kind of work around that and then lost all of that because they were considered Merrill's clients and it was the financial crisis. And so I had to start from scratch again. So I've done it twice, but that was a huge learning opportunity because I said, you know, my partner and I really, when we decided to partner, we, we really defined the vision of the firm that we wanted to have and the types of people we wanted to work with. And we really stuck to that. We've, we turn people away or we just don't pursue referrals once we kind of establish that maybe not it's, it's not the right fit. And that's been a wonderful thing because I, I work with people that we genuinely like and care about and enjoy working with. And instead of feeling like I have to just work with anybody, whether I like them or see long-term opportunity with them or not. I just had to, I just had to meet requirements. When you guys were building this firm, you guys, you guys designed the the person that you wanted to serve. Number one, who is that? And number two, has that changed over time? It's really not changed over time, which is interesting. It's, it's actually, I feel like the industry has come to us versus where I think we were a little early in the working with millennials and, um, well, Gen X and Gen Y in, in general, but 10, 11 years ago, that wasn't a conversation you heard very much. People thought you were nuts and it was all, you have to have this high minimum. But what I saw was a huge opportunity that I could not serve friends and some of my own demographic. I'm 38, my partner's 42 or three. When I was at Merrill, I would have friends that had great future earning potential and current earning potential. They were maybe doctors or lawyers and had great jobs, but really needed financial planning and help, but they didn't have the assets for me to be able to take them on. And when Matt and I sat down and we're looking at the people we wanted to serve, it was really, we, we defined it in three buckets and some fall in multiple buckets, but it was from day one and it's who we serve now. And that is Gen X and Gen Y. It's uh, usually, but not always, two income earning families. We do financial planning, investment management, life insurance, college planning and saving with 529 plans. Anything we advise on their corporate benefits if they have them, if they're a partner in a, a firm or anything. We also do some, we help uh, with tax minimization as much as we can. And then some of them fall into the second bucket, which is business owners. When Matt and I started working together, as, as when the, he, we were, he was asking me questions, what would I want to do? And I said, I really want to be a business owner and help business owners. I'm from a family of business owners. And I've always felt like I was an entrepreneur. So we really have a passion for helping entrepreneurs of all sizes. Our, a lot of our clients have gone from one person to now some over a hundred and have fast grown revenue. And we've really loved watching their success, but we also speak their same language. You know, I deal with payroll, I deal with HR, I deal with office space, um, things that you're not just an advisor, you know, where that's all taken care of for you at, at a larger firm. You have to wear it as you know, wear all of those hats yourself, which comes with, you know, uh, 
you have to make the right hire. You have to choose the right space. These are all very serious decisions you're making without a lot of experience necessarily or training in that. So we're able, based on our own experience ourselves and having worked with other businesses, able to help business owners. And then the third bucket is what most of the country works with, which is uh, your boomers. So 55% of our book of business is Gen X and Gen Y. 45% is boomers. Um, Our average client age is in the 50s. I don't know exactly what it is today, but it's pretty young. So even our boomers are are, a pretty young demographic. They're pre-retirement, or I would say early retirement. So having this clearly defined clients of who you wanted to serve, how did that change how you approached building your practice and and finding these clients? Because I mean, when you're starting out, like that is a huge piece of what you have to do. For one, there aren't a lot of people serving the Gen X and Gen Y. So it's mostly referrals from friends. And ironically, because the media talks about you have to get the next generation, ours happened kind of the opposite way. Those clients were sending their parents to us. The parents are moving closer to the grandkids. They're retiring. Their advisors are retiring. So we have a multi-generational practice. Um, last year, we could officially say we had four generations of a family, which was pretty neat. It was a 529 for a baby, but still we counted it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was technically an account for, for the fourth generation. So that's pretty cool um, to be able to experience that with, with the families. We're marketing to centers of influence, most of whom are actually our clients or have become our clients because they've seen what we've done for mutual clients and really like what we do and have actually ended up moving their assets and work through our process. And they continue to send folks. And that's going to be real estate agents, mortgage lenders, payroll providers, lawyers, um, people that are working with the same type of demographic. And then retirees, there's a couple of companies that actually we have a lot of tech here. So for some of the Gen X, Gen Y. We work with a few companies that we know their benefits really well. And so um, we're going to get clients from them based on referral amongst the employees, especially if they have a major event like an IPO or a buyout or something. And then a lot of them have stock options and want advice on on that. And, and so that's sort of a, a natural demographic for us as well, because a lot of them are around our same age. And then the boomers, there's a couple of companies that have an older uh, employee base and that through different ways we've gotten to know the company and the benefits really well. And a lot of the executives, when they retire, they know we've worked with their colleagues and they're happy. And so they'll just let us know, hey, I'm about to retire. Can we start the planning? Did you consider going and working for somebody else? You know, I talked to many people. Matt was the last person I spoke to because I ended up working with him. But When I was at Merrill, they made many introductions to me for advisors that were looking for transition or a junior partner. I never found the presentation to be attractive to say, because it was, you take my C&D clients, work that book, and build me some A clients as well. I was already bringing in what what were considered A clients and great clients for a long-term book of business for me. So I didn't see why I would change that. There was really never any true value at at on my end and no true commitment on a transition or promise that I would even end up with the books or, you know, the opportunity to be a true partner. So I always kind of politely declined it. And then when I was interviewing, I looked at other firms and I just felt like I would really like to do my own thing. I I didn't know at the time that it would be in finance. I, I I didn't know what it looked like and I couldn't really figure that out. And that was frustrating. So 
when I met Matt, the timing was perfect and his conversation was different. It was all focused around what did I want? What did I want to build? What did, what did that look like? Who do I love to work with? And he was like, I'm already doing all of this. And so it was not as, it was a lot less of a conversation of what can you do for me as what do you want and how can we accomplish that together? So let's talk about your partnership with Matt and um, because you guys have different skill sets. Um, so tell me about how like that partnership, how you guys have seen that grow over the years and, and what really has made that your partnership uniquely successful. Yeah. So there, there are, I think a couple of main things that are, have been critical in our success. One is that we, we do have very different skill sets. I run a lot of the operations of the business and I love systems and creating systems and training team members. I love marketing. I actually, my first job was in public relations. I enjoy all of that. And I love, um, the, the male female aspect has been great, but Matt really loves the analytics, the investment management. I do the financial planning. He's responsible for certain things. And, and so with that, nobody's overlapping. We could both do each other's jobs, but we don't really enjoy it. And I think that's important because I'm staying in my lane doing what I love and he's staying in his lane doing what he loves. And then I think one thing that's been beneficial is from day one, even without any need, really, we started a um, organizational chart for the firm we wanted and what we envisioned and all the needs it would have. And we backed ourselves and the assistant we had at the time into, uh, or we put a TBD on, you know, we didn't need it now, but maybe later on who was responsible for what. So it was very clear. And every single year, uh, we just celebrated 10 years together, but in, in 2019, but every single year we have reviewed the organizational chart, looked at who's a member of the team and who's responsible for what based on their skill sets. And so that's evolved over time. The other thing we did is we very, from the get-go, very first part of our relationship said, what have we seen that have ruined other partnerships? It's fighting over money. It is who's spending more time on the business than the other. And potentially people going out and doing something else in addition to the business and then kind of losing track of what their their um, wealth management business is. And that's what I, I saw at Merrill Lynch, a partnership fall apart because of, of a similar situation where a partner opened a retail store outside of the wealth management and was spending a lot of time there because she had to, and kind of the partnership fell apart. And then we spoke with a partnership that we really respected and still do, Hanson McLean and Scott Hanson and Pat McLean in California. And they kind of discussed with us something. So we created a rule that if one person wants to go into another financial commitment, whether it's a business or buying a building or whatever that looks like, the other person has to have a 50-50 vested interest in both the money up front and then the revenue, if any, coming out of that and as well as the expenses. And what that has done is eliminate any, um, so if, if someone's spending time on that business, the other person's benefiting from it either way. So that's been helpful. And then the other thing is, we knew we would be making a lot of big decisions if we stuck together long-term, whether it's employees, technology, office space, broker-dealers, regulation changes and how we um, manage clients that may we may not both like or want to keep working with or bring on board. And so what we decided was, what's how do you end every fight before we even knew what they were or disagreement? And what we decided was the person that felt the strongest one, period which has kind of been a weird way to operate, but it's worked 
for a decade and we've had many disagreements. And for example, I wanted to bring on eMoney really early when we started uh, as a technology platform for planning because I didn't feel like I had a great tool at the, at the time with what we were using. And it was expensive, very expensive for us at, at that point in our business. It was a financial commitment we were a little concerned about making, but I really strongly felt the ROI would be there and it, and it always has been. It's been a great investment for us. And Matt said, you know, you, you feel the strongest, you win. Uh, when we were changing broker-dealers, he felt the strongest, he won. Um, we've had thing after thing that, and, and, and that's when a lot of people don't want to lose control, kind of you and I touched on that earlier as we were talking, but that's the only time that I felt like, yeah, I lost control, but also I had a say in, in the conversation and the decision, and all of them have been have tr- I trust the person that ended up making the last call. He trusts me and they've ended up being the right calls. And so you have to kind of learn to, when you, when you, when you get all of the benefit of the, of the partnership, you also have to trust that person and know that you're in a partnership with them. You have to trust them to make great decisions, but that can break and really strain relationships. And so we upfront decided we wouldn't fight about money we would invest in any, anything and everything together, and we would, if we got in disagreements, the person that felt the strongest, as long as it wasn't like unethical or illegal, you know, they they would win, and that's kept us together. So it's worked out. It's difficult sometimes to remember that when you're in a heated argument, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, we're we're both in the same vision of serving our clients well and doing the best thing for uh, our team people that we serve in the longer, there's a short and long-term vision of our, of our company. You said that you guys don't argue about money. Is that just something that you guys just agree that you're not, I'm, I'm curious to know more about that. Yeah. So when I say that, I mean, we just like every client's 50, 50. There's one right. client that Matt has little to no interaction with. That's one of our more significant relationships I would never go to him and be like, well, you know, you didn't really deal with this. And we made X revenue from the fees mm-hmm. Because he's still running the investment portfolios. So because the way our, our relation, I'm, I'm actually talking to the client, but Matt still runs a task that has to do with every client. I still run tasks that have to do with every client. So we just said, we're not going to ever kind of nitpick on, or if, if Matt spent more on, you know, flights last year than I did, we don't care. We're, we're just not going to let as long as there's nothing way out of line, then you have to just kind of have a conversation about it. But we've never had to. I mean, we we trust each other and um, just kind of said from day one, we don't we don't want that to start to be a conflict because money can tear apart any relationship. You're right. Partnerships are really, really hard. I've seen a lot of them go awry, unfortunately. Um, I'm, I'm curious. You also talked about the time that you spend in the business in the business how does that kind of balance out, especially as like, I mean, I know you've had kids and there's been different focuses, I'm sure, in your guys' lives. Like, do you guys find that you guys had like the same level of commitment or ambition around your your financial planning practice? We do. So one thing that we're both very similar and um, probably to a detriment is that we're probably driven to a fault. Um, it, we actually had a conversation. We just had, had lunch together and I said, you know, Matt, I feel like every time we've hit these goals, I'm almost depressed because I, I need the next goal. Why can't, why can't enough be enough for me or, and for you? Like, why are we like this? And, and, you know, just kind of talking through like, why can't we just enjoy what we have? 
<laughs> and but we're both so self-motivated and driven. And I think that comes from a lot of similarities and, and kind of things we've experienced in life and wanting to really provide a life and experiences for our children and ourselves that are not necessarily driven around money, but they are driven around income and lifestyle. And um, so I think that's a very similar just personality that we have. And so therefore that's never been an issue. But Matt's daughter is in her um, late teens, early 20s in college, my children are five and eight little boys. So our current lives have been very different. I've I've had kids during our partnership. I had, I've renovated a house three times. Matt went through a divorce. When we started working together, he did have a young daughter. He went through years of having a teenage girl, um, <laughs> which I've heard is, is, is a challenge at times. And his daughter is wonderful. We've just sort of I mean, we're great friends. We've just supported each other. And that is the benefit of a partnership. When I have to be out with my kids, he can support me. He's an Ironman and a a marathon and cyclist and enthusiast. And uh, he's obsessed with it. But he spends a lot of time training and, you know, doing traveling to accomplish these, um, you know, personal goals of these Ironman and different competitions. So, yeah, he's got the ability to do that and be out of the office because I'm, you know, I'm here as backup. So we've just supported each other through those life stages and we'll continue to. Have you found yourself having to build your business differently because of your kids or because, you know, you are a woman in, in, in finance? No, I mean, I've, I've really built the business exactly the way we wanted to. We, we both have. Um, I, this is a general statement. I love working with women, but I find myself working better with couples. Um, I, I get assumed because I'm a w- woman in financial services. I'm a female advisor that I work with women or have women as a niche. And that's not the case at all. In fact, in our practice, most of the, not, not all, but most of the single women work more closely with Matt and for whatever reason. And I'm definitely involved with them, love them, love to go have wine. Um, I I think it's just personality type. I I don't know. Um, But our male female dynamic has worked really well in a couple situation. Um, And I think not even just male female, it's two people in the room, one listening, one talking, Matt and I observing different things or hearing different ways. I think it's just the benefit of two heads um, is better than one sometimes. And um, clients have, have liked that. I haven't seen where I work more with the wife than the, the husband or anything like that. It's about 50-50 uh, for both of us. So I've, I've been able to, my, my family and my children have not changed the way I've built my business. Um, I really just am working with what's my favorite. I work with people that I like, frankly, and, and so, <laughs> I'm so glad to be able to do that. Um, which is a benefit, you know, you know, as a working parent, that work-life balance is such a joke. Um, I've just brought my family into my business. Uh, my kids will be in the office this afternoon. I share with them that mommy helps people. I don't like to talk about mommy's working all the time. I had a client event Wednesday night and was able to put them to bed You know, at the very end, just kiss them goodnight. And they usually go to that event, but they had baseball practice and they were bummed they miss it. My clients love seeing them all dressed up at the uh, economic presentation dinner. So I think 
being an independent advisor, building a business the way that we've been able to, I've had to work hard and it's been a struggle very often through pregnancy and, and, and having young kids. But I've also had the benefit of flexibility and support from a great team. And so I can I can go pick them up from school this afternoon, bring them back to my office, get plenty of work done, be with them. And they see a different female than I think most people in the past have grown up with. And I love that there'll be little men that watched a female entrepreneur in finance find success. And I share with them my podcasts and videos and they're they're bored to tears, but they think it's cool on on YouTube sometimes. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I'm, I'm very transparent with them um, about everything that I, you know, both benefit from struggle from enjoy, you know, money, and that what they have is from hard work from their parents and and it nothing was just handed to us and and that they're very lucky little boys. You know, I love how you're talking about how, you know, instead of trying to figure out how to balance everything, you're saying, how can I integrate everything? And I think that's a really cool perspective on how to have it all. Yeah. And actually, it's funny. After I was saying I was demotivated, Matt and I had this business coach and I was like, I'm having rough days. I'm just demotivating. We hit this goal and I need another big goal and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, tell me about your day. What do you mean you're having tough days? And my kids were much younger. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I need to get up and get makeup, heels, you know, my, I need to look great. I'm in front of people all day and I need to be on, but I've got these toddlers running around. I'm trying to get them ready for daycare or school. Then I'm dropping them off, rushing them in, carrying all this, you know, carrying a kid and all this stuff in, in heels. And, you know, by the time I get to the office at eight 30, I'm in tears. And sometimes they're crying on the way to school or we're late. And, you know, it's just really stressful. And he said, why do you have to be at the office at eight 30? So that's when we open. He said, you're the boss. Change your day so that it's it's better for you to be productive and happy than to come in a wreck. And so I completely changed my day and my productivity. And we actually, from that point, I set the next goal, which we hit in less than 24 months, which was to double our assets under management, which is a huge goal. And you know, our coach was like, okay, you should set a goal. You shouldn't set a crazy one. <laughs> and... <laughs> I said, no, you know what? If I only get halfway there, we've still grown. Um, but we did it in 22 months and, you know, super proud of that. And But what happened is I didn't worry about getting me ready in the morning anymore. And I had my husband mostly take them to school. And then once they left, I, I have my coffee. I work on my emails. I, I take my time getting ready. You know, I might I might listen to a podcast I need to catch up on or a motivational one or I'm, you know, I, I do what I need to at the house. I hired a, a young college girl that for 10 hours a week, she babysits and she runs errands. I stopped stressing about, is the house neat when I leave? She comes by every day, tidies up. And, you know, it costs me a few dollars a day for my mental sanity. When I walk in the door, everything's kind of straight. And little things have been done. My dry cleaning was dropped by today. I'm in the office less. I get more done. I was already very uh, obsessive about time blocking, but when we wanted to grow our business that fast, I knew I had to get more obsessive over time blocking. So we put in client meetings and prospective client meetings and marketing things before we'd even planned what they were or who they were. And so we knew we just had to fill those spots. This sounds so like the antithesis of this hustle culture. I mean, you're still doing all this work and getting all these things done, but you're getting more done by slowing down. 
Exactly. And not, I mean, you know, people brag about, oh, I was in the office 12 hours a day or I was there at 730. I think for certain roles that is important. You need to show, you need to show hustle and commitment. And like when you're moving up in, in a company or, you know, the lackadaisical show up at nine and check out the door at 501. If you're trying to get ahead, I don't think that's super impressive, but I think it's also not impressive to work yourself to death where you don't enjoy what you're doing and you're not a, I need to be a good mom when I'm home, not worn out and stressed out. And I see them in the mornings and the evenings. And that's when I'm, I'm not a morning person, but in the evenings I'm tired and they are too. And I just found changing some things that seem counterproductive made me more productive. So you created the Female Advisor Network. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and kind of what spurred you to create that? Yeah. So the Female Advisor Network is a national membership organization for female financial advisors. Those are the only people we allow into the uh, organization. And it's really just a community of women that we all do the same job. It's by advisors, for advisors. Um, The goal is to uh, be industry changers and voices um, through support, education, mentorship, and and collaboration. Um, We have a a lot of different features and benefits in the program. Um, kind of a quick overview without going into the details of any. Um, they, you can go to femaleadvisornetwork.org and uh, check out more. But we do um, we do have a mentorship uh, program, an accountability partner program. Those are 12-month guided workbooks where you're partnered and paired by us based on a lot of questions uh, that a survey goes through. If you if you fill out the form that you're interested, we host an annual retreat um, or there'll be per- periodic retreats. Um, we have a speaker kind of and media uh, where if you are interested in either beginning to have uh, speaking and media engagements or want to increase or be a resource, then I have like a spot on the on the members only website where you can fill out a form and share your expertise or what you would talk on. And we're contacted by people all the time. Um, actually, uh, I'm also contacted by people that want to sell their business or buy their business in certain areas. So we have opportunities for that and, uh, or partner. Um, we have conference connections and community connections. Um, those are either locally female advisors getting together, hosted by an ambassador and members can write in, they want to be an ambassador for their uh, local area, just getting those kicked off. And then the conference connections are a meetup during the whatever national conference and been trying to work with conference organize, organizers and make sure there's an opportunity for the women there to get together, ideally at the beginning of the conference, just so they can make friends and network, have kind of a buddy system along the time that they're there and get to know each other further. And then uh, as, as soon as a member joins, they're sent this really pretty uh, but discreet leather, uh, square, like a luggage, it looks similar to a luggage tag um, that goes on their bag that they can wear at industry or local events that identifies them as a member of the Female Advisor Network, ideally to help connect members that may not already know each other at events um, or just to identify someone to have a quick, co- you know, it's a, it's a conversation starter. Um, so lots more to come. We're starting webina- uh, webinars and Um, We have a partner marketplace where lots of fintech and um, other types of companies that offer products and services for either women or advisors have discounted and promotional pricing within our partner marketplace. So um, 
a lot more exciting things to come this year. Um, we celebrate our one-year anniversary in April and um, just have had such amazing response. I've met so many incredible members each week. We do a member spotlight, which has become my favorite part of the week, just seeing what all of these incredible women are doing. And then to create an online uh, community, we have a closed social network called a mighty network where um, it's like almost like a chat room and there's different topics and we share questions or successes or someone can say, Hey, I'm looking at this technology versus that technology. People can feed uh, their responses and into that. So um, it's been fun. I, I, I hope more women uh, continue to join. The bigger the network is, the more beneficial it is for all of us together. And so uh, every every week we see more and more um, members join in and start to get begin to engage. And I just can't wait to see what happens. What was really the driver behind you you wanting to start this group? It's having been looking for it for so long. I mean, when I was at Merrill Lynch, I really didn't have a lot of female colleagues when I was when I first went independent. I was an island, and I and I've started these groups as um, more women in business locally, and if, for different reasons, kind of started them and then let them move on. Um, some of them just morphed into out of the initial thing, but they really it's hard to understand our business, and it's nice to talk to someone that does and that has the same unique challenges or struggles. And so I really kept seeking out other females in the industry, but I don't have a lot in my current community. And so it's like I'd go to an event, meet them, see them for a little bit, and then you're out of touch again. And so I thought, how can I create a continued relationship with multiple ones other than just being Facebook friends or something? And then so that's where the retreat came out of. I was like, oh, we could do an annual retreat, really, you know, uncharged, rewind, um, and then I thought, well, a three-day retreat isn't creating an, really that ongoing thing that I'm trying to. So then I just thought, well, I, I mean, why not me? I, I knew I had enough industry relationships to, I, I made a business plan of what benefits would have been, if, what things would have benefited me throughout my career and where I am now and where I've seen other advisors that are past me or beyond me in different stages. And so when I looked at that, I thought, yeah, you know, I, I really think I can create this. And then I think I can get the word out through different organizations and relationships that I already have and try to benefit other advisors that I know have already been through or are going through or will go through the same things that we all have. And that I found the same common conversations over and over. And I thought, you know, we can really, we can be doing more together. So is Matt a partner in this as well? He is. He he 50% owns a woman's organization um, <laughs> and he is not allowed membership. But um, <laughs> yeah, so when I, but, but that, you know what, that's been one of the cool things that I didn't, I never, when we made that rule 10 years ago, I never in a million years thought it would be first having to approach it over this. We always thought it would be buying another business or a building or something. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I was able to go to him and say, this is my dream. This is a passion project. It needs X investment. It did require uh, quite a lot of money up front investment, especially the retreat. So I basically went to him and said, I need a substantial amount of money up front from you that you will get no benefit from, um, could potentially lose money. And, uh, but I still want to do it. And so we did, and we have lost money. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. But it's, I mean, in that there's a lot of startup costs with any business, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's, we hired someone to actually run that organization because I can't do it day to day. I'm kind of the, the face and vision and we've, um, added a incredible woman, Claire Edwards. She interned with us for a summer. I brought her back on last spring. She helped me create the, the network. So it's kind of her baby too. And then we're, we've both been in a huge learning curve, but we hired her full time to run the network. So, you know, there's, there's costs to run any business, but so Matt has, um, yeah, he's lost money on it, but I appreciate his support. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so great. Well, I'm just, every time I hear somebody who just sees a need and goes and just does it, like doesn't ask for permission, just, just does it. It's, it's so inspiring to hear. And I hope, I hope that the listeners are inspired by that as well. Of like, if you see a problem, like you can be part of the solution right now. Yeah. And I mean, this is not critical in any way because I was part of it, but I got to a point of like, I'm sick of hearing that there are so few females in the business. How do we get them there? Why are we losing them? And it's, there's not a lot of support out there. And, you know, where are the, where are the training programs? How do they know that they have a lifeline? How do they know, you know, questions they may not feel comfortable asking their manager or in a larger forum, like I'm pregnant. How do I break the news? I've talked to so many women at wirehouses that are terrified to get pregnant in a training program because they genuinely have no idea what will happen to them. I just, and and we're going to come out with some other programs that are designed to support. Um, I'm in process of finalizing them now. Uh, pregnant, postnatal, and working mothers. Oh, I love it. It is so needed. You know, don't sleep a lot, but like to get it. <laughs> try to, you know, just trying to add value where I see the need as I've, I've talked to other women in, in the networking community. So I appreciate the support and the, and the opportunity to even talk about it because it's been a grassroots movement. I don't have, you know, a lot of marketing um, expertise other than growing an advisory business. So it's been sort of the wild, wild west on how do I get people to, how do I get the awareness out and so any, any way I can, I've been grateful for. Thank you for joining us today. I, one final question for you is if you were starting over or looking at somebody who's starting new right now, what would be your advice to them? I don't know that there's any way they could do this, but have confidence. Our industry thinks that anybody that doesn't have, I feel like 20 years experience is a baby and has, and, and kind of gets discredited. But I really, I always tried to fight for my voice and stand up for what I believed in, for what was right for my clients, and to just have confidence that I knew the knowledge that I had. And if I had questions, I still have questions 14 years in. I constantly say, I don't know. I need to get back to you. And so just having that knowledge that you can do a great job. You don't have to have 20 years or gray hair. A, a young advisor, I've been the senior advisor for clients since I was 25 years old, and I'm still only 38. And you don't, you don't have to continue. It, you, you do have to prove and demonstrate your knowledge, but have confidence and conviction in it as well. I lost that in the financial crisis, and it hurt me rebuilding. And that was the biggest difference in rebuilding the second time versus the first, because I lost total confidence. And once I got it back and kind of got that fire in my belly, it was amazing the change in our business. And we can we can see that in I track assets every month, I track revenue every month and have for 10 years. I have a I have a spreadsheets and PL that show you where 
where our business changed a couple of times. And evidently when I go on maternity leave, we have like a, a growth in um, referrals. So I don't know what happens. Um, <laughs> just as a joke. But I would say that was the biggest thing I would just really press on because I, I see that happen so much and then people kind of fall out. Aging and longevity have changed financial planning, and creating an intentional plan for long-term care is more than a sale. It's a discussion about health, lifestyle, family, and how your clients want to spend their final years. With Ash Brokers as your partner, you don't need to navigate it alone. From starting the conversation to identifying clients and determining the source of funding, they make it easy. When it comes to long-term care, just ask. Give them a call at 1-800-589-3000 and ask for the long-term care team, or visit them at ashbrokerage.com. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.